Thank you, Uncle Lance. And again, welcome to Kahului Baptist Church if you're just getting here or just joining us online. Today, we quickly come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been here for a while. Uh, we could be here for a lot longer, but we will wrap it up today with the conclusion. The title of the sermon this morning is The School of Rock. The School of Rock. We're going to Jesus, the teacher, and hopefully we will learn how to build our house on that rock. In this passage today, Jesus, in his concluding statement, having worked through the introduction, through the main body of the sermon, now we get to the conclusion of Jesus, the preacher, his original audience. He packages this and he beckons them and us to the rock-solid, fruit-bearing, narrow way of life. And this way of life, it's not a joyless, drab way, but it's not an easy way either. It's full of joy and full of life and, admittedly, full of difficulty. But for those who hear, for those who trust, for those who follow with their whole heart, you will find true and endless joy and ultimate flourishing as we follow Christ. And so let's pray, and we're going to jump into it. Father in heaven, grant that we would remember what Psalm 1 says, that sinners will not stand, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Father, you know the way of the righteous and that the way of the wicked will perish. And so as we consider the narrow way of life and the broad way that leads to destruction, grant, Father, grant that we would lay hold of true wisdom this morning. I pray for my hearers. I pray for myself. As we all enter here to worship with various burdens of soul, various sorrows of heart. We all have our own challenges that even as we want to just be with you are distracting our minds. I pray that you would lift our heads, carry our burdens, and bring us to yourself. End our suffering. We pray as we sang that you would come, come, Emmanuel. Bring us home that we might be with you forever. And Lord, I pray as your word is preached, if there are any here who are on that broad way, if there are any here who are bearing bad fruit, if there are any here who are workers of lawlessness, may you stir them awake, open their eyes, and draw them back to that path. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do this here and everywhere that the gospel is preached. We pray specifically, I do lift up a special plea for all the churches on Maui. I pray for the pastors who speak with united words and a united message. I pray that that united gospel message would be heard and received and that repentance would be granted. I pray that that pointed message of which you are aware, that it would be heard right now. 
I pray false teachers would be removed. I pray false shepherds would be taken away by the chief shepherd. I pray that you, Father, would fight for your flock against all dangers. Help us, we pray, Father. And then, Lord, I do ask now that you would give us minds to focus, give me clarity of speech, and where I fail, then may Jesus' sermon stand sufficient and supreme. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's your big idea. Now, this is the conclusion, and so this is one sermon, right? This is one sermon, and and if I had to wrap it up, I I have to go back to the beginning where we all started this because Jesus says the same thing, and so I thought I have to end with this big idea. Hear the king's words and be nourished. Embrace him and you will flourish. We, we kicked off way back in Matthew 5.1, this overview. Hear the king's words and be nourished. Embrace him and you will flourish. We have four points this morning. Two paths is point number one. Your first point, you're going to hear a contrast of two paths, two prophets, two proclamations, and two promises, all contrasted side by side throughout this whole conclusion. And so in verses 13 to 14, we have two paths laid before us. Now keep in mind, all right, we're going to catch you up to speed. Throughout this sermon, Jesus has been recalibrating, reorienting us to our view of righteousness. He's constantly pointing us beyond external displays of righteousness and constantly having us look where? At our heart, right? He's constantly wanting us to look at our hearts. He invites us throughout this sermon into a way of being in the world that is whole, completely devoted to God on the inside and the outside. In other words, Jesus knows that we seek happiness. We all seek joy. He introduced the very sermon at the beginning. He framed it in context of, remember, the Beatitudes, Your blessed life now, we had that sermon series. Those who seek flourishing, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. And on and on he goes, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he's setting up, he's framing this whole thing because he knows we all seek happiness. You're here this morning and you're seeking joy. When you go to work tomorrow, you seek joy. When you go home from work and clock out, you seek joy. When you get married, you're seeking joy. When you have children, you want joy with that family. When you retire, you want joy and happiness throughout your life from the time you're born till the time you die. Jesus knows we all seek happiness and flourishing. And throughout the sermon, he opens it up and ends it with his invitation to joy and blessedness. Where is it to be found? He says, only, the only place, the only hope you have at achieving joy is in proper relation to God through Christ. And he calls all of them, all of them in this sermon repeatedly to come enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, our problem isn't that we seek joy. All world philosophers deal with this. Our problem is 
is that we forsake true joy for broken cisterns. Our problem is that we forsake true life for that which does not end in life. And so here at the end of the sermon, Jesus calls us back one last time to the true source of wisdom and happiness. And so, in conclusion, Jesus now starts it off, verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. It's a famous section, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are, what's it say? Many. Many. I want you to hear that this morning. Verse 14, the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You see that contrast. Many enter the gate of destruction. Few enter that narrow gate that leads to life. This is a picture of two paths, two gates. One gate is narrow and hard. The other is wide and easy. The contrast is one of difficulty, you see. I like to picture, if you had to think of it, this is uh, Waihe'e Ridge. Anybody done the Waihe'e Ridge hike before? Raise your hand. Okay, and then Twin Falls. Who's done Twin Falls? Raise your hand. Which one's easier? Twin Falls, right? One is, is wide and smooth. You've got a nice parking lot. You even have bathroom stops throughout the way. It's a nice leisurely shaded walk. Anybody could do it. You just get out and walk around. It's a beautiful walk. Wahe'e Ridge, in contrast, requires passing through this narrow cow stall. You have to kind of do this shimmy through. You're met immediately with a steep incline. You're exposed to all elements, no shade. To make it all the way to the top is no small feat. Not everybody could do it. Coming back is even hard on your knees as you're just grounding down that incline. And so it is, Jesus says, there's a wide gate, it's it's easy, but the path is destruction. And then there's a narrow gate that's hard, and the path is life. And there's only a few who find that one. Now, we often think, when you think of that, that wide way, What do you picture? What is that wide, broad way to destruction? What kind of lifestyle do you picture there? I think if you're like most people, you're like me. I would picture the the lifestyle of maybe just a godless person. They're unchurched. They they live for themselves, just hedonistic, pleasure-seeking, whatever they feel like doing. I kind of want to do that. You know, I was made a man. I'm a man. I'm a natural creature. We have these natural urges. I want to drink. I want to do this. I want to do that. Yeah, that's good, and it's just natural. Maybe that's what you picture or, or something of just rampant wickedness right? Just whatever. It's actually not the type of person Jesus has dressed at all in this sermon, is it? Not, not one time throughout this sermon does Jesus really have that type of person directly in view, does he? 
it'd be kind of strange at the end of his sermon to introduce another actor or another type of person. And not that this has no application to that, but that's just not his main picture, is it? And so at the end, he's not introducing a new actor. No, he's again summarizing, wrapping back to something else. Well, what is that something else? All throughout, Jesus has not been addressing a godless person. Rather, Jesus has been addressing the religious person who's mainly concerned with external displays of religiosity. Not the godless pagan, the one who's rampantly wicked. Jesus is focusing this whole time on the religious one, the person that knows what God's word says about murder. They know the commandments, and yet they're content to be angry and to maintain a seething, low-level grade of anger with their brothers and do nothing about it. They know what God's Word says about adultery, yet they're content with lust in their hearts. They know what God's Word says about being generous with the poor, yet they practice their righteousness to be seen and praised by men. You see, the broad way Jesus mentions is the way of those who are simply concerned with playing disciple. In other words, if we had to modernize it, church people. Church people. We collectively are all in greater danger of being on this broad way and in view of this sermon that Jesus preaches than the other way of rampant wickedness that we may think of. So what then is the narrow way? Well, you remember the rest of the sermon, right? Jesus has been reorienting us to focus where? On our heart. So the narrow way is narrow precisely because its focus is the deeper level of the heart. That righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, that flows from the inside out, not content with dressing up the outside while the inside is full of dead bones. See, this deeper heart righteousness, it doesn't just ask, what am I doing? What action am I doing? What, what needs to be done? It's not content with asking that. It's, it's rather concerned with asking, what is my motivation for doing what I'm doing? Why am I praying? Why am I seeking? Why am I giving? Why am I fasting? And what is my true goal? Is it to be seen by men, to fulfill men's standards, and to check a box to get that praise of man? Or is it to seek after God because I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Isaiah 66, 2 says this. It describes this narrow way, the prophet Isaiah. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one to whom I will look. That's what he says. And once we look at the heart, once I examine my true motivations, once I tremble at God's word and reorient my life to seek God's kingdom by faith, once I do that, it's a game changer. 
It will, it will yield a righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees. It will. Now we're going to apply this at the end all together as we wrap it up. But that's his two ways, the narrow way and the broad way. Then he goes on, number two, to two prophets, verses 15 to 20. Verses 15 to 20, he gives us two prophets. And I hear like a, uh, a low level under, like somebody's volumes muffled or something like that. But uh, we have two prophets, verses 15 to 20. Two prophets. He gives us this picture of two ways and two prophets. He says, verse 15, beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And so, we have this warning. First, he says, enter the narrow gate. Now, he says, beware of false prophets. We have a warning concerning prophets. There are two kinds. There are true prophets, and there are false prophets. What is a prophet? First, it's worth just a summary of a prophet is somebody who speaks to men on behalf of God. So a prophet, somebody who speaks to men on behalf of God. A priest, somebody who speaks to God on behalf of men. It's just the opposite, prophet, priest. Uh, And so we have two prophets, true prophets and false prophets. The Old Testament is full of warnings about false prophets, like in Deuteronomy 18, verse 21 to 22, but the New Testament's full of them as well. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, it describes false teachers. 1 John 4, 1 says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Just think of that. How many false prophets are there? John says, many. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says this, many will follow their sensuality or licentiousness, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Just think, a false prophet, because of them, the way of truth, this way that Jesus is describing, that narrow way that leads to life, false teachers, because of them, that way is blasphemed in the world. Jesus says of these false teachers, false prophets, that they will come to you. What are they wearing? Sheep's clothes. But what are they? Wolves. Ravenous wolves. It's a picture of ferocious deception. So they come, and they enter the flock, and and they say all the right things. They look the right way. They dress the part. They wear the right clothes. They make the right sound, just like a sheep. This wolf has learned how to baa. They'll even smile. They appear friendly. And yet, their lifestyle causes the way of truth to be blasphemed. It's very sad when it happens, but it happens. The scripture said it would happen. It said it'll happen more and more as the end approaches. It happened in the first century. It happens today. And how do we recognize these false prophets? It's it's important to see how this plays out in the broader context. Verse 16, he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, 
A healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. What is going on here? Now, it's a little interesting because on one hand, Jesus, he tells us that you're going to be able to look at this tree and you're going to know if it's good or bad by its fruit. This false prophet, false teacher, you're going to be able to look at the fruit and tell it's bad. But on the other hand, he says they're going to come to you as wolves in sheep's clothing so that in some sense you won't be able to tell immediately who, whether they're true or not. And so, so what's going on here? Because these two pictures almost clash. What's happening? Jesus, again, consistent with the rest of the sermon, is beckoning, beckoning us, calling us to a righteousness that goes beyond external displays. He's saying, don't, don't just look at what you see merely as righteousness and be satisfied with it. As it is with these false teachers, these false prophets, they're going to appear to have fruit. They're going to appear to be sheep. And yet, we are going to know them by their fruit. Beloved, this is a warning to judge, again, accurately, truly, as Matthew 7 said. And what's happening is, really what he's getting at, is that this fruit can take time to reveal itself. It can take time. It doesn't happen on a day, a week, a month. It can take time, just as much as it can take time for a tree to bud and eventually grow and put off leaves and bear fruit. And indeed, if you put some plants, some trees, side by side and they start to pop up, you won't know what kind of tree it is until it starts to bear fruit. Now, this doesn't mean... So it'd be wrong to go out of here and be constantly suspicious of one another. I'm not sure about that, Lynn Kingsley. That Melanie Nishita. Uh, not sure about these ladies. I think they're tricky, right? We shouldn't be constantly suspicious of one another. That would be a wrong application of this. It just means we shouldn't be overly enamored with external appearances of righteousness. We should be cautious of putting any one person other than Jesus on a pedestal. That doesn't mean we don't esteem one another highly. That doesn't mean we don't outdo one another in showing honor. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means Jesus is beckoning us again and again as he has the whole sermon to a greater righteousness that isn't just external like the scribes and Pharisees. This is a beautiful picture if we had time to flush it out of the importance of the local church, the importance of the body of Christ. Jesus says you will know them by their fruits, which means that there are other people around who are there to test your fruit, to check it, to help you to help nourish you. It means that there are others who can speak into your life. It's a beautiful picture of the local church, actually, and the need for it. 
let me ask you this. Who is competent and able to judge whether your fruit bearing is good or bad? Who's, who's going who's to be the one to call that? You say, oh, I think I can. Maybe God, Jesus, I don't know. If you're a false prophet, who should judge whether a false prophet is truly false or true? Hopefully not that false prophet, right? Hopefully somebody else, hopefully some other external controlling factor, beloved. The beauty of the body of Christ is that year over year, week over week, month over month, that in time, you should be able to go to other brothers and sisters and say, Pete, man, I'm struggling. And that Pete will take that fruit and he'll, he'll, he'll look at it and he'll say, smells good to me. It's not ready yet. Pastor Randy, keep going. It's okay. Or he can maybe look at that fruit and say, you know what? Something might be wrong here. Let's, let's help fix it. Or others can go in time and, and then say, man, months later, hey, Randy, you know that, that thing you were struggling with? Oh, that fruit is ripe. It smells just like Jesus. The aroma and fragrance of Christ is just emanating around you month over month, year over year. It's a beautiful picture of the body of Christ to save your soul, possibly, from destruction. As I said, we shouldn't be questioning one another's root system. All this means is, is as we smell and see the fruit in one another's life, whether it's Christ-like or, or out of place, if something looks out of place, it's to be prodded and pressed into, and it should be done patiently and, and in love, but nonetheless, it should be done. And Jesus, with this picture of trees and fruit bearing, he's getting at that this process may take time. It may take time. I like to say time reveals everything. Paul, the apostle, wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.24, and he, he put it this way. He says this, The sins of some people are conspicuous. What does that mean, conspicuous? The sins of some people are clear or evident. In other words, some people's sins you can see. Some false prophets and false professors, some of them are just really blatantly obvious and you can see. And he says, going before them to judgment. But the sins of other people appear later. 1 Timothy 5.24. The sins of others appear later. In other words, even if some get away with it now, we don't have to fret or fear or be anxious. Ooh, what about this? These, these people, we don't have to do any of that. Because even if they get away with it now, they won't at the judgment seat. The wicked will not stand at the judgment, Psalm 1 says. So we don't have to be overly worried. We can trust God and we can strive for faithfulness in the here and the now. And so that's our two prophets. Number three, he gives us two professors, two professions of faith. Verses 21 to 23, these are the passages of Scripture that as you read through them in Matthew probably would terrify you the most. Verse 21, you've read this before, maybe wondered, What's going to happen to you? I know I have. Verse 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is one of the most terrifying passages in the Bible for what it says. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord. You note the repetition of in your name. Did I not do many mighty works in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? They even use theological language, Lord, Lord, King. He says on that day, many will say that, and over many I will say, depart from me. That's worth hearing in its full weight. Combined with the previous section, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I don't want to blunt that warning. Isn't it interesting that Jesus ends his sermons with warnings? He doesn't end it with the warm, fuzzy feels. He doesn't end it with the one who builds his house on the rock. He ends it with the one who hears these words of mine and does not do them. His sermon is great. The the last words were great was the fall of it. He ends his warning, his sermon, with warnings. I think we need to hear those warnings. It isn't sound doctrine only that will save you at the end of your life. You can profess to have the sharpest. You can speak with great clarity on theological truths. You can have many seminary degrees, your master's of divinity, your doctorate of ministry. You can do many mighty things and lead ministries and uh, have church plants and do all of these things. Sound doctrine alone will not save you at the last day. Those are the big things. A a profession you made at camp when you were a child and you cried tears will not save you at that last day. It's not going to do it. There is a reason we call it a profession of faith. There's a reason why somebody would say, Randy has made a profession of faith versus Randy is a believer a true follower. You see the difference? It's an important nuance. It's getting at what Jesus is getting at here. There will be many professors, and over them there will be many pronouncements depart. Sound doctrine won't do it. Religious works of service, sacrificial though they may be, will not stand. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons, many mighty works, religious works 
will not do it in the end. Not serving on this ministry or that ministry, not helping this person or that person, not giving this much or that much, not fasting, not praying, None of these things, no matter how devout you may be in them, there, are, there is a world full of devout people that will not save you. That righteousness is insufficient to enter the kingdom of heaven. It isn't any of these things that define a true disciple. Now, having given you that warning, you need to hear it with its full wait. And at the same time, we shouldn't hear it wrongly either, okay? You need to hear it fully, but you don't need to hear it wrongly, because it would be very easy for me to send every one of us out of here and be like, I'm going to hell. Done. Out of there. But that's not the gospel, is it? That's not the fullness of it, is it? That's not the entirety of Jesus' sermon at all. This passage is not so much concerned with people who are honestly seeking God and trying to with their whole hearts. It's not as if you are like, man, I, I think I'm sincere in my gospel profession. I, I'm really trying to seek him with my whole heart only to find out at the very end that you've been punked, right? This isn't what Jesus is trying to do at all. So what's happening here? One scholar put it like this. His name is Donald Hagner. I quote, Perhaps no passage in the New Testament expresses more concisely and more sharply that the essence of discipleship, so here it is, no passage in the New Testament expresses this more clearly and sharply, the essence of discipleship is found not in words, nor in religiosity, nor even in the performance of spectacular deeds in the name of Jesus, but only in the manifestation of true righteousness, that is, doing the will of the Father as now interpreted through the teachings of Jesus. No words or random good deeds can substitute for the full picture of righteousness the evangelist has given in the sermon, close quote. You see what he's saying? He's flushing out again what Jesus has been saying throughout this whole sermon, that we are to be wholly righteous from the inside out. We are to be same on the inside that we are on the outside. You want to know the clue to understanding that warning properly? Jesus' pronouncement, depart from me, here it is, you workers of lawlessness. You workers of lawlessness. The same is true with, the, with those who were false prophets that Jesus has in mind. It's not that they were false so much in the sense that they were speaking the wrong message, but they were false in the sense that the message they were speaking and the life they were living, their internal heart and mind righteousness was out of sync. That's what was false. That's what was insufficient. That's what was classifying them as workers of lawlessness. Jesus is calling us to be whole through and through. So we have two pronouncements. And then the final point, two promises, verses 24 to 27. This is a famous picture. We all have heard it. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. Who built his house on the rock. This is wisdom literature, by the way. Hear that wise man. Jesus is calling us as the wise king here. 
Everyone then who hears the words, these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell. This is judgment language, by the way. You remember how God destroyed the world of Noah? Through, through what? Judgment. Rain. Blood. Worldwide catastrophe. This is judgment language. So he's, he's lifting our gaze to the judgment How can we stand in that day? And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone, here's the warning, who hears these words of mine, I hope you're not like this this morning, that you you hear these words and don't do them. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This isn't a sermon against those who built their houses in sand hills up in Wailuku. No, by all means, this is a call to true wisdom, to embrace Christ. The contrast is twofold. There's those who hear the words of Jesus and do them or does them, and they are like those who built their house on the rock. And then there are those who hear the word of Christ and rejects it. And it's like building their house on the sand. Now, I want you to understand both of these build a house. Both of them have a structure and a place to live. You look at them side by side, they may even look very similar. Again, Jesus is getting at this idea of sometimes it takes long. That's one of the tricky things about sin is it doesn't always bite immediately. Sometimes it takes long. He says, make no mistake, the day of judgment will come, and when it does, what you built on will be evident to all. And if you built on the sand, your house will fall, and great will be the fall of it. It's a final plea for wisdom and flourishing, just like Psalm 1. I've referenced it multiple times because it's in the backdrop, undoubtedly. Sinners, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. But those who, whose delight is the law of the Lord, they are like a tree, whose leaf does not wither, but prospers. And so it is, Jesus ends his sermon. Interestingly, James, the book of James, that's written by Jesus' half-brother, James would reference this very idea in James chapter 1, you remember? He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then he goes into James chapter 2, and his famous faith without works is dead. You should actually read the book of James with an eye to the Sermon on the Mount, because all throughout he is pulling constantly from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's laced throughout the book of James. If you do, you might find that James and Paul are not at odds at all. 
just simply referring to two separate or two different stylings of Jesus' teaching that are actually one and the same. Both of them are appealing to you, to me, to follow God with our whole heart. And the the result of this is that it flows from the inside out so that we are people who believe God's word and do God's will. And the result is a solid foundation, a solid house that will withstand any storm. All right, one last thing to see in this whole passage is what Jesus says. Verse 28, or the response to what he says, verse 28 and 29, and we end this. So Jesus finishes, great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Interesting. What is it that had authority? Do you remember? It's a subtle word. We just missed it because we don't think about uh, the, the interplay here. We just missed it in verse, where, where is it? Verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of Moses, everyone who hears these words of the Torah, no, what does he say? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. That's astonishing. Jesus doesn't come and say, listen to Moses, listen to the Bible, listen to God's word. That's what they would have considered their Bible. Jesus comes and again ends his sermon as he opened it. Everyone who hears these words of mine, one last thrust of sitting in the seat of Moses, the greater Moses has come. The true wisdom of God is here. Come and follow me to find life. All right, let's wrap it all up with some application. What about you, friend? What is your response to Christ this morning in this sermon? These two paths, two prophets, two pronouncements, and two promises. What is your response? Let me ask you this. Are you seeking life elsewhere? After hearing all this, examine your life. What path am I on? What profession am I making? What profit am I listening to? And what wisdom will I embrace? I hope you will come to him today, that you'll hear these words of Christ. And now I want to apply each, a picture of each one of these. Let's consider the narrow and the broad road. Maybe you're here and, and you are the one that Jesus is referring to. You are concerned with external religiosity. Let me ask you this. Do you play church on Sundays? Do you just come and and dress up and play church? You play the part, and then you leave. What does your conversations look like with your family once you get home? What is your conversations like when you go to work? Are you more concerned with dressing up as a Christian Or maybe you look at other Christians and you judge other Christians that don't check all the boxes that you'd like. Oh, I don't think they should wear shorts when they're up here. Oh, why are they wearing that thing on their head? Oh, 
pastor should wear a tie. Wait, why, why are they doing this, that, and the other? And you're just looking at people. They don't check off all the boxes that you think they should check off with your little list of religiosity. Meanwhile, not looking at yourself at all the things that you do that are inconsistent out of your life because you are playing church. And if you are not justified by God, you must seek to justify yourself. And if you're going to justify yourself, it will be by condemning all those around you. Meanwhile, you are full of lust, anger, greediness, and your righteousness is only external, and it is insufficient. Beloved, I hear and I hope you hear this call to come back to the true way of life, to start to look at your heart, to look at what's happening in here, and that you would find life. Maybe others in here, you need to hear God's warning about bewaring, bewaring, the, the warning to beware of false prophets. Maybe you're too easily enamored with flashy Christianity, with eloquent podcasts and preachers, with Christian radio that has a never-ending stream of content. You say, is that bad? No, but you listen to all these people. I ask, when do you listen to Christ? Just simply in the Bible. When do you open his word and just hear your Savior speak? Not Pastor John Piper, not Pastor Randy, not Pastor whoever your favorite preacher is, but when do you hear from God himself? And don't hear me say that John Piper's a false teacher. Simply, we may put too much weight into other voices other than God's. Others in here perhaps need that warning from verse 21 to 23. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Are you doing the will of the Father in all areas of your life? starting looking within, working your way out? Or are you knowingly living a compromised life? Everyone else sees you saying the right thing, doing the right thing, playing the disciple, but you know inside you're a worker of iniquity. Hear this warning from Jesus. At that day, he will issue a command that leads you to hell and judgment. Depart, worker of lawlessness. Temporal pleasure isn't worth eternal punishment. Lastly, maybe there's somebody online watching. Maybe. I just want to speak to that person. If this is you, if you are a worker of lawlessness, if you are a false shepherd, if you are hurting the flock and running from truth, I pray that you will repent. I pray that you will find life and that all of us collectively, maybe you strayed from the Broadway, maybe you entertained false teaching, maybe you are living out of sync and whole. I hope you look to Jesus and know that's why he died to secure forgiveness for all sinners 
So that you, whether you're far or near, that wherever you are, if you're the prodigal son even, and you're down there with the pigs, that you would lift your eyes and remember, my father might have mercy. And you will come back with all your heart and you will find he receives you not as a servant, but as a son. Come back and there's grace and forgiveness. I end where we began. Our Lord in this passage is the prophet to be heard, the king to be obeyed, the wisdom of God to be emulated, the joy giver to be celebrated, and the shepherd to be embraced. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this beautiful sermon, your word that leads us to life, that warns us against destruction, and that calls us back with the promise of forgiveness and grace. And so, Father, I pray whoever needed to hear the words, that they would have heard them and that they would return. We ask that you would do this not for my good, but for the glory of Christ and the good of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.